Well, good evening. It is so very nice to be with you this evening. As you know, uh, my wife and I had a chance to take a vacation this last week, so we're coming off a wonderful week of rest. And uh, we missed you guys. We're glad to be back. But uh, it was it was a a blessing to listen to all of Pastor Frank's message and about 15 minutes of Pastor Sal's was in the car. I got that far. The first 15 minutes sounded fantastic. I'll finish it, I guess, tomorrow when I'm in the car. Uh, but, uh, but I listened to Pastor Frank's message from last Wednesday, and I have to tell you what a blessing it is to know that there are gifted teachers in our fellowship. Uh, really, none of this has anything to do with me as a person. Uh, God may use me occasionally. He uses all of us. The important thing is that his spirit is working, and it is such a comfort and a joy and bring so much peace for me as a pastor, as a pastor of this church, to know that, you know, I can go away and I don't worry. Because I know God is in control, but he uses men and women. Many of you serve in so many different ways. Just know that God sees all of that and he is pleased. Amen. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We're excited to get back now into the book of Proverbs and to pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago and just learn receive your wisdom, the book of Proverbs, your wisdom, God's wisdom for us, that you would take the time to inspire the writers, primarily Solomon, but the writers to to share with us the wisdom that you imparted to them, that we might first of all receive it and then impart it to others. So Lord, it's, it's not hard to understand this book, but oh, is it so difficult to live it. This is one of those times where learning it isn't hard, living it is hard. So, Lord, help us to apply these lessons to our hearts. They may resonate with our spirits, but we need them to be lived out in and through our lives. So give us that understanding. Give us that ability to put these things into practice and to reap the benefits of applying wisdom as your scripture encourages us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are now in uh, chapter 20 of the book of Proverbs. And chapter 20, those 30 verses deal with this truth. We need to be careful. We need to be careful to think things all the way through. One of the very important but strangely lacking elements in leadership that I see sometimes is that people, men and women, don't always think things all the way through. Many times in our lives, we, we get involved in something, but we haven't really thought it all the way through. I think one of the dangers as a nation. We've seen this going back to the 60s, I think, at least from my perspective. I was born in the 60s. Uh, Our nation will get involved in conflicts. We'll get involved in different disputes, uh, even like this Ukraine uh, war or whatever you want to call it, conflict. Uh, We don't always think. We're quick to get involved in things. We don't always think it all the way through. We don't always think, how are we going to get out of this thing? Afghanistan, how many years was that, right? And then, then you know, Vietnam, different conflicts, different problems. How about borrowing against our future? Have we thought that all the way through as a nation? Clearly, we haven't. There's so many things that I see in our nation, but also in our culture, but in the church. You see people get involved in things, and they don't always think it all the way through. Where is this going? I'll give you a perfect example. Perfect example. It is possible, I'm sure you realize this as a Christian, to fall for or fall in love with someone who's not a Christian. Why wouldn't? I mean, you're human beings. There's, there's, no, there's no law that says you can't fall in love with someone who's not a Christian. But have you thought it all the way through? 
There's an old Italian proverb that says a fish can fall in love with a bird, but where would they live? Here's the problem. We don't think it all the way through. If you did, you'd be like, well, this is great. This is wonderful. Oh, it makes me feel great. But where do we end up? Where does this thing end up? Where are we going with this? So you find out that sometimes God's wisdom is not just what to do, but thinking about where that decision will lead you. To the degree that we apply God's word so that we don't end up in a bad place or that we don't end up in a place we're not intending to be, it's important to apply wisdom. So that's, I think, chapter 20, at least from my perspective, helps us to be careful to think things all the way through. Then when we make a decision, we're not just making a decision about today. We're thinking it all the way through. Okay, so let's look very very, uh, quickly. We'll look at these verses. They're very self-explanatory. But in chapter 20 and in verse 1, these first couple of Proverbs have to do with uh, destructive behavior. Sometimes we engage in destructive behavior. We don't think it all the way through, you know, where it's going to lead. And so we start in uh, verse 1 of chapter 20. Perfect example. Wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, what's, what's the big deal? I'll have a glass of wine. I'll, I'll, I'll have a, a mug of beer. And, and I understand. I get it. I used to drink both many, many years ago. But where does it lead? Where does it end up? We're told here it's a mocker. That is, it mocks the person who gives themselves over to it. It's not a glass of wine or having an occasional beer we're even talking about here. We're talking about allowing that to become a part of your life. Uh, And then notice, whoever, uh, and beer is a brawler. Uh, It's not hard to imagine that if you have a few beers in you, uh, you're more likely to get involved in a fight or brawling. It happens, clearly, uh, for some reason. Uh, And whoever is led astray by them is not wise. So understand, you may not be led astray in that first sip, even that first glass. But if you ask a person with an alcohol problem, an alcoholic, how did it start? It started with a glass of wine. It started with a mug of beer. It didn't end there, though, did it? Verse 2, a king's wrath is like the roar of a lion, and he who angers him forfeits his life. Now, this is one of the things you have to think about. When you anger your authorities... In this case, it's a king. But even in our government, when you, when you anger those in, in control, those in authority over you, you can expect it to be receiving the consequences of that action. So the idea is here, it's like the roar of a lion, and he who angers him forfeits his life. You very well, especially in this culture, you may very well pay with your life for angering the king. Kings were given enormous power in ancient cultures. They still are today to some degree, but not like back then. So... You want to be respectful of authority. That's what I think that proverb tells us. Verse 3, it is um, to a man's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. This is all the destructive behavior that I introduced uh, in the beginning of of, of this uh, study. Quarreling, getting into conflicts. Notice it's to a man's honor to avoid that, avoid strife. There are some people that look for it. But if you can avoid strife, then you won't be a fool because a fool is known by his willingness or actually his quickness to quarrel. Notice this, verse 4. A sluggard, that's a lazy person. A sluggard does not plow in season, so at harvest time he, he looks but finds nothing. So this would be in our culture today because we're not in an agrarian society. But to, to make application, if you don't go to work on Monday, you may not be eating on Friday because you're not going to get your paycheck, right? 
Well, back then, if you didn't plow in the right season, if you didn't do the work up front, when harvest time came around, you had nothing for the winter. Verse 5, the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters. I love this. But a man of understanding draws them out. This is a beautiful poetic analogy. When you go to a well, you would draw out water. Well, they liken the purposes of a man's heart to water. But notice the purposes, that what drives a person, right? What, who are you? What makes you tick, we might say? What, who, what makes you who you are? The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters. People go to therapists just to find out from the therapist who they are. It's even hard for them to understand sometimes who they are or why they are the way they are. There, there's a lot of deep hurts and deep needs in many of us. And we don't always understand. I can tell you this. Uh, I, I think they call it Maslow's hygiene theory. It's a pyramid, and it starts at the base with your basic needs, and it works its way up the pyramid. If you've ever seen this, you can Google it if you haven't seen it. It's a basic psychological pro- profile or, or uh, premise. And basically the idea is that all of us as human beings want our basic needs met. You know, we need food, we need water, we need relationships. And as you work your way up the pyramid, you find that you get to a place of what's called self-actualization. Now, I'm not going to go psychological on you, but self-actualization means I know who I am. And no matter what you think, I promise you that if you're in your 20s, you haven't figured that out yet, unless you're a very rare gem. Most people don't come into a real understanding of who they are and why they are the way they are until they're in their 30s and 40s. Sometimes it's even later. Depends on the individual. Some people are less complicated than others. But I can tell you, as a person in um, no, late, late 50s, uh, that it, in my 40s, I started, to, I, I started to understand who I am, why I'm that way. Uh, they're deep waters. And, and you don't have to rush. You know, it takes time to discover, even yourself, who you are. We don't know what's in our hearts sometimes. God has to show us. But notice it says, the purpose of man heart, a man's heart are deep waters. But notice this, but a man of understanding draws them out. So a man or a woman who is wise is going to take the time to take inventory. So many of us don't know who we are. Who are you? Can you answer that question? Who are you? I was up at uh, ISC camp this, uh, this summer, and I had a guest speaker. It happened to be Lee Roussan. Uh, one of the New York Giants from the uh, 80s and 90s. And uh, he asked the young kids, he asked them the question, who are you? And, of course, they would say, oh, my name is John Smith, my name is, you know, whatever. But that's not what he was asking them, not what your name is. Who are you? I hope as we get a little bit older and more mature and if we've, we've drawn out of those deep waters who we are, that you can answer that question when someone says, tell me who you are. Who are you? I would hope that the first thing we'd say, well, first of all, I'm a child of God. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, God has called me to this ministry. Uh, I happen to be a person who enjoys X, Y, and Z. And, and you know, I'm married, or I have a family, or I, this is my job. Those things don't necessarily define you, but as you begin to understand and learn who you are, you become self-actualized. There's a step beyond the pyramid. It's called self-transcendence. It's when you get over yourself and you start to think about others. But do you know you can't help others until you know who you are? So I love this proverb. I could teach a whole study on this proverb. The purposes of a man or a woman's heart are deep waters. You wouldn't want to be shallow, right? 
but a man of understanding draws them out. So I hope that as we go through the Word and as you study on your own and as you grow in relationship with God and others, when someone asks you, tell me, who are you, Robert? Who, who are you, Cynthia? Who are you, Jim? You could say, well, this is who I am. And not in a you know, braggadocious way. Just, you just sort of, this is who I am. I'm, I, I'm comfortable. I know who God has made me to be. I know what my gifts are. I know who I'm called to be and what to do. So that's a great scripture. Okay, verse 6. Many a man claims to have unfailing love, but a faithful man who can find. It's basically a lot of people claim to be faithful, claim to be uh, the person you can rely on. But when the chips are down and you really need someone, well, good luck. It's very hard to find faithful people, though many people claim to be faithful. Isn't that true? Verse 7, the righteous man leads a blameless life. That is, a life, not perfect life. A blameless life means they can't bring an accusation against you. So a righteous man leads a blameless life. Blessed are his children after him. Your family is blessed by your righteous actions. Verse 8, when a king sits on his throne to judge, he winnows out all evil with his eyes. I love this. When you would winnow or thresh wheat, you would throw it in the air on a high mountain or hill, and the wind, or prevailing wind, would blow, and it would separate the wheat from the chaff. The chaff you want to get rid of. It blows away. It's like the, the husk. And what's left, what falls, is heavier, so it's the, it's the wheat. So it's the separating of the wheat. So when you winnow, you're threshing. And what we're being told here is that when a king is sitting as a judge, and, and this is one of the things we probably don't think about because we're not monarchists in this country, right? Typically, we're not. Um, so a king had the additional responsibility, many times, most cultures, of being the highest law or, or, or highest uh, judicial law. So the king was the ultimate judge. There may have been other judges, but the king made those final decisions, the Supreme Court, if you will. So not only the executive, but the Supreme Court as well. We separate that in our country, but they did not. So here we're talking about the king as judge, and notice he winnows out all evil with his eyes. What does that mean? He's perceiving, he's looking. Uh, you'll note that people who are perceptive can oftentimes see who you are and whether or not you're innocent or guilty. Uh, they, they have the insight, you might say, to be able to look into your soul. The eyes are the windows of the soul, right? You look into the soul, and you can tell what's really going on. And so if you have evil in your heart, standing before a judge, it's very hard. Believe it or not, it's very hard to pretend to be innocent when you're guilty. And that's what we're being told. So what's the easiest thing to do? Don't have evil in your heart. You know, when you get brought in by the police and you're a suspect, and the truth is you didn't do it. The truth comes very easily. But when you're lying, it's very, very hard to maintain a lie under questioning. And that's how many people get caught. So here's an encouragement to just, just don't allow evil in your life. Verse 9, who can say, I have kept my heart pure and I am clean and without sin? Of course, that's the counter to that. Nobody can. Rhetorical question. Nobody can say that they have uh, no sin, that they're completely clean and they've kept their hearts pure. Nobody can. That's why that question is made. So we have to be on guard not to allow evil in our hearts, to purge that because we do have evil in our hearts. And we don't want to be in a situation where we're called before the judge and we have to give an account for our actions. One of the things I would say, one of the things you want to do, we all have evil in our hearts. We think evil things. We plan evil things. But if you can go from just thinking about it and not doing it, 
you know, and to, to not doing it, like you think about it, but you don't do it, that's growth, right? If you think, I really want to choke this person, and you don't choke them, I'd say that's a good day, right? <laughs> Much better than if you'd actually go through with it. So I think it's important to remember as we put these Proverbs together, uh, just understand no one can say, I never think about, you know, wringing somebody's neck, but lots of people actually go through with it. And let's not be among those people that do. Okay, lots of great application here. This is an importance in terms of justice. Differing weights and differing measures. The Lord detests them both. We've talked about this before. Uh, commerce was accomplished by weighing and measures. So you have, uh, let's say, a bushel, right? They didn't call it that. They might call it an ephah. But let's say you have a bushel or a quart. If you lie about the, the bushel, the measurement, then you're cheating. And if you say it's a pound, then it's a, little, it's a little more or less, depending on whether you're selling or buying, uh, it's wrong. So what God really is telling us here through his word, be just, be fair, be upright, don't cheat. That's the easiest way to say it. Verse 11, even a child is known by his actions, by whether his conduct is pure and right. Even a child, so much more so an adult. So what is all of this telling us? It's telling us to watch how we behave. Like I said, when we, when we introduce this chapter, you need to be careful uh, to think things all the way through. Are, are you really, truly acting appropriately? One of the things we don't do enough of is, is thinking it through. If I steal this or if I cheat this person, where does this lead me in terms of my character? And by the way, if you steal, it's, the first time might be a little challenging. The second time is a little easier. By the third or fourth time, it's second nature. You develop that calloused heart. And that's just stealing or cheating. But even a child is known by his actions. And, you know, isn't that so true? Because kids are not so good at, at covering their, their character. If you've got a kid that's just a handful, uh, it, it's not hard to see that. They don't, they don't cover it up very well. And then you have a kid that's just generally good. Again, very, very easy to observe that. Um, so what's the encouragement? Make sure your conduct is pure and right. All right? Verse 12, ears that hear and eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. And keeping it within the context, it basically what he's telling us that people see, people hear. They see who you are, they hear what you say. You should be living circumspectly. It is important. You can say, well, I, I don't care what anybody thinks of me. I get that. But to a degree, remember, they'll know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. People are watching you. They truly are. People will know who you are because they'll hear what you say and they'll see what you do. All of this is encouragement to good behavior. Do not love, verse 13, do not love sleep or you will grow poor. Now listen, I love sleep, but that's not what it's saying here. Do not love sleep or you will grow poor. Stay awake and you will have food to spare. That is, if you love sleep more than work, well, I mean, who doesn't get up on a Monday and say, how I wish I could sleep in, especially this last Monday, right? It was dark, it was rainy. You know, I was fortunate enough to not have to go anywhere. I didn't put anything on my calendar because we just got back. But, but those are days where you're like, oh, yeah, sure, I love sleep. But that's not what it's saying. If you're lazy, if all you want to do is sleep and lay around and you're not willing to work, notice what it says, you'll grow poor. I have found that people who have money problems oftentimes, not always, oftentimes their problem is they just don't know how to work. I'm glad to say my parents raised me to work hard. One of the greatest gifts my father gave me was to teach me that if I didn't work, it wasn't giving me an allowance. I don't understand allowances. I'm not judging you, parents, 
but I don't understand it because my dad made it very clear. I don't pay you to exist. <laughs> if I wanted some money and I did all these things around the house, he just thanked me for being a good son. I don't remember. A couple of times my dad took some money out of his wallet. I, I, I thought I was in another dimension, but... <laughs> but he taught me something. If you work, you'll have money in your pocket. So... That's, it's a good lesson, and we need to remember that when we're dealing with kids especially. Okay, so I like this one, verse 14. It's no good, it's no good, says the buyer. Then he goes off and boasts about his purchase. That's the person that goes in, they buy something like a house or a car or, or they're, they're at a market. Oh, look at these eggplants. These are disgusting. These are horrible. I want a discount. And then they go off and tell everybody, look at the great price I got on these eggplants. You know, I'm using an eggplant for whatever reason. But the, the, the point is that we do that sometimes. We, we, I have gone into like car buying. For a while, I would only buy cars from dealers that had a set price. Like I bought a couple of Saturns. You don't negotiate the price. Then I bought a Mini. The price is the price. Uh, but when I went to go buy my Buick, it was during the, uh, it was during the, the, the COVID years. Let's call them that. It's 2020. And uh, when I went in there, the prices were so phenomenal. There really wasn't much negotiation necessary, and I enjoyed that. But I'm not the kind of person that enjoys saying to a salesperson, like, basically, they're not going to make any money on the deal. You know, they're trying to feed their family, too. You know, I want a fair price. That's the idea. You want to pay a fair price? Not too much, but not too little. You know, raking somebody over the coals, that's not the goal of a Christian. Pay a fair price. So I like to do business with people who are willing to make money but not cheat me. And it's very rare to find people who are willing to do business like that. But notice, the scripture tells us this little thing here, but it's kind of like in a very negative tone. It's no good, it's no good, said the buyer. Then he goes off and boasts about his purchase, not being honest. That's not an admirable quality. I think we think that's true, that, that being really cheap about things and taking advantage of people is somehow some admirable trait. It's not. It's not at all. Okay, verse 15, gold there is and rubies in abundance, but lips that speak knowledge are a rare jewel. So he used, you know, jewels are very rare. That's what makes them valuable, right? I learned a little bit about jewels on this cruise that we were on because they had one day where they did a seminar on, like, the difference between diamonds and sapphires and rubies. And it was actually very interesting. It was about 20 minutes to a half hour. I found out things that I never knew. Like, did you know that a sapphire and a ruby and an emerald are all really the same stone? It just has to do with the different elements that get involved. And if it's green, it's green for one reason. But that a diamond is distinct, but that a sapphire, a ruby, and an emerald are all the same. I didn't know those things. So I started to find out things about jewels. And there are precious stones, and there are semi-precious stones. And then I found out about a new category of stone, never heard of. Uh, what was it? Phenomenal, Michelle? Was it phenomenal stones? Uh, Alexandrite, I guess, is the one they talk about, which is the phenomenal stone. It's like, in other words, it's incredibly rare. Like, they don't mine very little of it comes out of one mine. The point is the jewels are very rare. They are. But lips that speak knowledge are rarer. That is, people who say something worth saying. So there's a lot of people out there talking. Make sure your words are, as the Bible says, seasoned with salt. Make sure when you say something, it's worth listening to. Speak with the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, and with kindness. And I think that it's an important truth. Verse 16, take the garment of one who puts up security for a stranger and hold it in pledge if he does it for a wayward woman. 
This is interesting because the culture worked this way. If you needed to buy something on time, and generally it could be like, I need to buy this in the morning, and by the evening I'll pay you all. I'll pay it off. I'll pay you back. It's like, I need this right now, and I'll come back and settle my tab either tomorrow or very, very shortly, or before the weather gets cold. So what they would do is they would take a garment or a cloak as a pledge. So let's say it was the summer. You don't need your cloak, right? But you will in a few weeks. Or let's say you'll need it at night, but not during the day. This was a way of saying, or let's put it this way, this is a way of the motivation necessary for that person to pay you back. But notice he says, yes, do that. And they, they would do that. That was a very common practice. However, hold it in pledge if he does it for a wayward woman. So there are people that buy or borrow to spend their money on bad things, like a wayward woman, or gambling, or drugs. And one of the things that honestly breaks my heart as a, as a minister of the gospel, as a servant of Christ, is when someone walks in our doors and they, uh, and they want help, and we try to help them, and they really just want money or even gift cards now, because I found out we can't give gift cards anymore, because apparently this is just how evil the world is. You give them a ShopRite gift card, they go and they trade it for drugs. It becomes, you know, so now we can't even do that. You want to help people, right? We can't. So we have the food pantry in the back, and we offer them food, and if they take it, they, they're hungry. If they don't take it, they're lying. That's basically how it works. So it's really kind of sad, but there are people that will do all sorts of things to, to bilk you out of some money, to spend it on something bad. So what they're saying is here, make sure you don't just hand over money to someone to do something. Make sure you take a pledge. Take something that's going to keep them from wasting their money and their resources on the wrong things. That's the idea. And that has a lot to do with the culture. Okay, verse 17. Food gained by fraud tastes sweet to a man, but he ends up with a mouthful of gravel. Now, I don't know about you, but if I have an egg salad sandwich and I get one shell, I won't eat egg salad for like a year. Have you ever tried to eat a, a sandwich at the beach and you get a grain of sand? You know that feeling? Just imagine like a little, and then you're like, I'm done for the day. Ugh. Right? Because the next bite, you're just waiting for that. Oh, you ruined everything on me. So egg salad, I'm very fussy about egg salad. One shell will ruin my whole day. At least the sandwich or whatever I'm eating. But here's the thing, a mouthful of that. That's an extreme exaggeration to make a point. A mouthful of gravel. When we were in Cuba back in 2004, and Sal was with me, he'll probably remember this, we saw, we came back, we were out doing something, some ministry, and we came back where they were preparing uh, dinner for us, and we saw all the women lined up at a table, and they had all the rice poured on a table, and they were sifting the rice. Now in Cuba, at the time, especially 2004, they were lucky to have rice, let alone sifters or whatever. So they would actually empty out the rice, sift all the rocks and gravel, out of the rice, and then they would put it back, and then they would cook it for us and for anyone who was eating there. So you're actually sifting out the gravel, because again, do you want to chomp on a piece of gravel when you're eating rice? No, you don't. But imagine a whole mouthful of gravel. That's very graphic. Notice what it says. Food gained by fraud. That is, you steal it, you cheat, you do something perverse or wrong to get it. It tastes sweet to a man. It does. It, it's, it's, oh, good. Oh, this tastes so sweet. And it's not just speaking of food either. Okay, it's, it's satisfying your desires, right? But notice he ends up with a mouthful of gravel. It's like that perfect sandwich with that sand in it 
or that egg salad with its shell in it, a mouthful of gravel, that rice with the little gravel pieces in it that weren't sifted out. That's a beautifully poetic description of what it's like to do something wrong. It may be sweet at first, but it ultimately ends up in a very miserable experience. Again, think things all the way through. That's the idea. That's the recurring theme here. Reoccurring theme. Okay, verse 18. Make plans by seeking advice, and if you wage war, obtain guidance. Boy, we really need to talk to the Pentagon. They really need to read this. Because a lot of times decisions are made to go to war, and again, they don't think it all the way through. Make plans by seeking advice. When you're making plans, long-term plans, short-term plans, mid-term plans, whatever they are, do you ask for advice? Many people only ask advice so that they can hear people speak until they hear what they want to hear. I know people that will call everybody they know until they hear what they want to hear and then say, oh, God told me. Meanwhile, they ignored the 17 people that told them it was a bad idea until they got the one person that validated what they said, and then they go and do it, and they blame God. They give him the credit for their disaster. But make plans by seeking advice. What is advice? First, seek the counsel of God. And you can seek counsel and the advice of others. Like, for example, you're thinking about buying a house. You think you might want to talk to someone who actually bought one? Or a car? Before you do that, taking a job. Let's say you're going to change jobs and you want to work as an engineer. You might want to actually sit down and have a cup of coffee with an engineer, right? What is it like being an engineer? What is it like being an attorney? What is it like working in a supermarket or a retail? But lots of people just do it. Oh, it's going to work out. God told me it's going to be okay. What they mean is, I don't want you to tell me what to do. This is what I've decided in my heart I'm going to do. All right? But notice, if you wage war, which would be like plans, war. Plans are like, oh, what are we going to eat tonight? War is like significant. People's lives are at stake. Obtain guidance. My heart to share with you on this topic is, you need to be asking people who know a little bit more than you do before you make big decisions. Think it all the way through. Okay, verse 19, this is an interesting one. A gossip betrays confidence. Well, no surprise there, right? A gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid a man who talks too much. If there's a man or a woman who's always talking and revealing, don't tell anybody, but you know what so-and-so said? That might not be the person you want to reveal your PIN number to. I have learned to be very wary of people that talk a lot. And unfortunately, your experience with me is you hear me up here talking a lot. So that's probably a bad example, but I'm up here sharing God's word. We're talking about people that just talk and talk and talk about nothing or everything or other people. And we got to watch our hearts. Gossip is so easy to fall into. So let's just keep that in mind, okay? You don't want to be always sharing uh, very important details with people who might, you know, loose lips sink ships. Remember that saying? Okay. Verse 20, if a man curses his father or mother, his lamp will be snuffed out in pitch darkness. That's a very graphic description, but the idea, if you're cursing your own parents, remember one of the big ten, honor your father and mother that it might go well with you in the land. Paul says it's the first commandment with promise. That is, if you obey, there's a promise of a blessing. I'm going to tell you something you may not know. You have chromosomes, X and Y, or X and X, depending on, you know, male or female, which we recognize in this church. Half of your DNA comes from one parent, and half comes from another parent. 
There are slight aberrations sometimes, and now they're doing genetic splicing where you might actually have three parents contributing DNA. That's unnatural. But they're starting to do some of these things under the cloak of like, oh, we want to cure disease, right? Very scary. I, that frightens me. Uh, they call that chimera or, or hybrids. It scares me a little bit. But uh, having said it this way, when you curse your parents and you have your parents' DNA, you are cursing yourself. You are your parents. Half of you is your mom. Half of you is your dad. You, we know this with Ancestry.com. I'm sure if you've ever done any of these DNA tests, you are literally the sum total of your parents, right? So when you curse them, you're cursing yourself. So why would you do that? And so the term, if a man curses his father or mother, his lamp will be snuffed out in pitch darkness. You're bringing curses down on yourself. Verse 21, an inheritance quickly gained at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. Remember the, uh, what was it, the prod- we call him the prodigal son, you know. That son got his inheritance and went and spent it on, as the King James says, riotous living. You know, bad lifestyle. And it's true, an inheritance gained quickly, quickly gained at the beginning, will not be blessed at the end. Verse 22, do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. I'm Sicilian, which means that this proverb isn't in my DNA. I was kind of taught by my culture that if somebody wrongs you, you get even. Anybody else? Maybe you were taught from your parents or from your culture that, you know, an eye for an eye. The Jews certainly had this, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? You knock out my tooth, I'm going to knock your tooth out. You poke out my eye, I'm going to poke your eye. And what I've learned in reading the word of God is this is flat wrong. Jesus made it abundantly clear. But even the Old Testament here makes it clear. Do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The book of Romans tells us, as Paul quotes the Old Testament, I will repay. We're not supposed to take these things in our own hands. It's so hard to to resist that urge, isn't it? It's that idea of turning the other cheek. It's not that you're supposed to take a beating, but you're not supposed to retaliate. Insult for insult, railing for railing. But you commit yourself to God, who judges righteously, Peter tells us. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Most of us get in front of the Lord on this issue. And we never wait for God to get involved. As we get older, we develop hopefully a little bit more patience. And I promise you, God pays his debts. That's one way of saying it. He does. Okay, verse 23. The Lord detests differing weights, and dishonest scales do not please him. This is a different way of saying what we said before. God does not like cheating, taking advantage of people, stealing, cheating, those types of things. Verse 24. A man's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand his own way? This is getting back to that deep waters issue, right? So think about this truth. If God is the one directing our lives, a man's steps are directed by the Lord, how can you or I, how can anyone understand his own way? Well, there's actually an answer to that question. You see, God, notice, if your steps are directed by the Lord, seeking God and developing a relationship with God will answer the question, and you'll be able to understand your own way. But if you don't, if if you just sort of 
go through life not thinking there's a God or not thinking that God is in control of your life as a Christian, you won't understand what's going on in your life. It's, again, self-actualization. Who are you? What is God doing in your life? Are you, are you going to that well of deep waters and drawing out the truths of your heart revealed to you by God the Holy Spirit through his word? It, it's a really, really important thing. It gets back to that long-term thinking, thinking things all the way through. Okay, verse 25, this is, well, it is a trap for a man to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider his vows. Now, I know a few people here have gotten timeshare, and there's some people that thought about it, thought it all the way through, purchased their timeshare, and enjoy it, and it was a good decision. Because they thought it all the way through, and you know what? It turned out to be a good thing for them. Sadly, because it's a high-pressure business, there are many, many people who've purchased timeshares that just want to get rid of them because they didn't think it all the way through. They don't have the lifestyle where they can really use those weeks or, or get to that location, or they just don't have the money to do it every year. And I've heard people that have done that or people that have uh, purchased RVs. And listen, I grew up in a, in a motor home and, and trailers. We camped all summer. My dad was a teacher. We had the summers off. And we would camp all summer. It was wonderful. Those things made sense for us as a family. It was the best way for us to enjoy the summer. But I know people that will buy an RV, spend over 100000 and use it twice a year. Michelle and I, we uh, rented one a number of years ago. Uh, I think it cost like $1,500 for 10 days. I mean, and we picked it up, put gas in it, had a wonderful week, came back, dropped it off. No problems. So a lot of times people make a decision, again, don't think it all the way through. But dedicating something rashly, making a commitment... People get into relationships too quickly. They, they commit to contracts too quickly. They take jobs too quickly. Get involved in ministry without thinking about it. You're like, oh, I want to serve in Sunday school. Except, guess what? When you say you're going to serve in Sunday school, you actually have to show up. So I would, again, don't dedicate things rashly. Think it all the way through. And then later they consider, oh, what did I get myself into, right? Hopefully it's not a marital vow, but... Vows sometimes are made, and you're not thinking where it will end up. Verse 26, a wise king, we're back to winnowing, a wise king winnows out the wicked, and he drives the threshing wheel over them. Now, the threshing wheel was another way to winnow, to separate the grain. Oh, it, was, it was done on the harder grains. Uh, they would, like a grist, a grist mill, and they would roll over the grain, and that would separate the grain from the husk. And sometimes you have to do that with certain grains. I'm not an expert in that kind of thing, but I do know that's how it was done. So again, now we find out the wise king winnows out the wicked. He's able to discern. That's about the best word I could use. By letting things go through, you know, driving that threshing wheel over them. The idea is like listening to what they're saying, winnowing out wickedness, winnowing out evil, listening to the story and being able to discern what really happened as a judge. Now, verse 27, the lamp of the Lord searches the spirit of a man. It searches out his inmost being. Notice we talked about the king being able to do that, but more so God can look right into your soul. I'm going to tell you something so profound and so simple that you're going to say, that's not profound. And maybe 10 years from now, you'll say that was profound. Are you ready? The most significant motivator for living an upright life is pleasing God. I'm going to say it again, and and I promise you, you won't get the full force of it, because I'm just beginning to. The most significant motivator for living an upright and holy life is pleasing God. If you do it for that reason, 
you'll have all the motivation you need. If you're having a hard time breaking a habit or you're doing things you shouldn't be doing, if your motivation is pleasing God, you'll be able to stop. I'm going to leave it at that. You have to meditate on it. You really have to think that all the way through. It's, it's, it's a deep thought. It really is. So the lamp of the Lord, that is God being able to see, he searches the spirit of a man. He knows why you do what you do. He knows what you do, but so do you. But he knows why. Have you asked? Who are you? Why do you do what you do? Oh, I don't know, Pastor Tim. I just always did. This is just, have you asked God to reveal it to you? And then have you asked God to give you a heart that pleases him? Notice it searches out his inmost being, who you really are. Verse 28, love and faithfulness keep a, a king safe. Through love, his throne is, uh, through love his throne is made secure. This is the idea that if a king is loving and faithful to his subjects, to those he's ruling over, of course his throne is safe because the people protect it. They like him. This goes for presidents. This goes for leaders, governors. Uh, they don't have to fear the people because the people see who they really are. Through love, his throne is made secure. There was a time in our nation where our leaders were so respected, but of course they lived respectable lives, that they didn't need Secret Service protection. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I'm not an expert in this, but I think the Secret Service came about primarily having to do with currency and things, and I think it was around the time of Abraham Lincoln. So uh, before that, you had presidents that would just like walk down the street. That could never happen today. And part of the reason is they're not secure. Why? Because people don't like them. And Sadly, for good reason. Verse 29, the glory of young men is their strength. The gray hair, the splendor of the old. And I know what you're thinking. I'd rather be young than have gray hair. But that's not what's being said here. See, a young person has vitality. They're strong because they're young. Gray hair is the splendor of the old. It's a subtle way of saying their experience You know, we all wish we were young with the experience of the old, right? We all wish we were young and strong like we were at 20 with the wisdom of being 50 maybe, right? But it doesn't work that way, sadly. But I think this way. I think, man, I don't want to ever be 20 again. Not because I don't want to be 20 years old in my body, but because I don't want to be 20 years old in my mind or in my character or my experience. I am not ready to give up the gray hairs. I've earned them. Verse 30, last verse here. Blows and wounds cleanse away evil and beatings purge the inmost being. Uh, This is the idea. Sometimes you have to learn the hard way. You know, it's possible. We'll see in the next chapter. It's possible to learn the easy way, but many times we have to learn the hard way. And that's basically what we're being told. Okay. A recap of 20. A lot of good things in that chapter. Uh, Basically, Think before you give yourself to destructive behavior. Think before you start trouble unnecessarily or even take revenge. Think before you give yourself over to laziness. Think before you act deceitfully. Think before you take risks or commit yourself to something. Think before you open your mouth. Chapter 21. We need to consider the consequences of our actions. This is another way of saying the same thing, right? Thinking things all the way through. Part of thinking things all the way through is like... What are the consequences of making this decision? So when we look at verse 1 here, of chapter 21, it says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, 
and he directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Now, water course was like a uh, like plumbing, directing water through gravity. So the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. There's one fundamental rule of plumbing. Water will always follow the lowest point. You're not going to have water go uphill. You're not going to have water leak up. It leaks down. All right? So if you go in your bathroom and you see uh, water on the floor, it didn't come from the floor below, generally. I mean, unless there's a pressure pipe burst underneath you, for the most part, it's dripping down from whoever lives above you, right? Very simple truth. Well, listen, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. God is in control of our leaders. How can you say that, Pastor Tim? Look what's going on. Believe it or not, I think many times we get the leaders we deserve. Sadly, as a culture, I think we get the very leaders we deserve. I look at what's going on in New York, and I think to myself, you know when it'll change? In San Francisco, in Philadelphia, in Chicago, in Austin, Texas, in Houston, uh, in um, New York. You know when it'll change? When the people there change. When they say, we've had enough. I lived through the David Dinkins years in New York, and then I lived through the Giuliani years. And what a difference it was. And people finally got so fed up with New York the way it was. It was horror. It was a horror show before Giuliani got in. And then he came in and he changed everything. And New York was great. And then Bloomberg and then you had de Blasio. And now here we are again with Eric Adams, right? Things are bad again. When does it change? Well, I don't vote in those elections. I don't live in New York City. It changes when people change. So don't blame God for the leaders we have. I would say we get the leaders we deserve. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. God allows those things. Sometimes it's the consequences of our votes and our actions. And he directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. So what we're going through in our nation today, it serves the purposes of God. It is, is, at times it's unbearable, our leadership. But it's still God is in control. Can I hear an amen? That's an important truth. Verse 2, all a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. So you may think what you're doing is okay. Have you asked God? I always say to somebody who comes to me and says, oh, Pastor Tim, is it okay to whatever it is? Well, have you asked God? Have you looked in his word? Don't be so quick to tell them the answer. Good teachers give you the ability to find the answer for yourself. So sometimes I'll say, well, before I answer that question, uh, I can direct you. Why don't you read 1 Corinthians and see what it says? And you tell me. And you'd be surprised how many people, when they actually have to read it for themselves, come to the right conclusion. The Lord weighs the heart. He knows. He knows how to reach that person. You don't have to do that work. uh, Verse 3, to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. We've heard this principle all the time in the scriptures, right? Doing the right thing is better than just making sacrifices to God. So, oh, I give $1,000 a week to the church, but are you doing what's right? Are you, are you doing what's right and, and, and more acceptable? Or are you just giving money and then doing the wrong thing? That's the principle. Sacrifices are of God or a broken and contrite spirit or heart. It's, that's what God desires. Verse 4, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, their sin. The lamp of the wicked. When we talk about the lamp, it's like the light of the wicked or the, or the influence. The influence. A lamp brings light. It brings influence or, or affects the people around you. Uh, the haughty eyes, the proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, they're sin. The influence and the impact of those people is sin in our world. Verse 5, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to pro- poverty. So being diligent will make you successful, but being hasty will make you poor. Again, 
not thinking things all the way through. You're probably tired of hearing that. Verse 6, a fortune is made by a lying tongue. It is a fleeting vapor and a deadly snare. Or excuse me, a fortune made by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a deadly snare. So you say the right things or the wrong things to get what you want, right? It's, but it's fleeting. Eventually, you're going to have to pay the price for whatever it is you said and whatever it is you promised. It's a deadly snare. It will lead to bad things, bad consequences. Verse 7, here are some of those consequences. The violence of the wicked will drag them away, for they refuse to do what is right. So violent people eventually suffer the consequences. Verse 8, the way of the guilty is devious, but the conduct of the innocent is upright. Again, the consequences of living a devious life versus an innocent life or an upright life. Verse 9, better to live, this is an interesting one, better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Let's be fair here, a quarrelsome spouse, right? It doesn't have to be wife. It is in this context, but... Okay, so have you ever had to climb a roof? When I was a younger man, I would climb my roof. I gave that up a very long time ago because I got some gray hair. And that gray hair teaches me if I'm up on that roof, I can fall off that roof. But I used to be a little less wise, and I would climb up on my roof. And I can remember that feeling of being on the corner of the roof. Anyone who's ever been on the corner of a roof, it's like that feeling of I could fall. It's not a very comfortable place to be. All right? You don't relax on the corner of a roof. I often see those pictures of the people back in the 40s and 50s that would build skyscrapers and they're eating their lunch on, a, on an I-beam hanging over the... Or you've got some iron workers or steel workers here tonight hanging on that beam off the roof or whatever in the city. Like They're so far up it doesn't matter if they fall. They're, they're probably dead on the way down. For most of us, that is not a comfortable place to be. It is very uncomfortable to live in a house or share a house or a home with a quarrelsome spouse. That's what it's like. And anyone who has someone in their life that they're living with that's difficult can absolutely say amen. I don't ask you to say amen, but I'm sure they could. Okay, verse 10. The wicked man craves evil. His neighbor gets no mercy from him. If you've ever had to live next to or in a building with someone who's evil, you can understand this. We used to rent an apartment when we first got married over here in Botany Village. And we had someone next door who was constantly on their phone scamming people and doing things. And it was definitely not a very enjoyable experience. So his neighbor gets no mercy from him. All the more reason to be very careful about where you live and who lives next to you to the degree that you can. Verse 11, when a mocker is punished... The simple gain wisdom, and when a wise man is instructed, he gets knowledge. This is a contrast. So a mocker's punished, and he's a simple person. He gains wisdom through punishment, whereas the wise person just needs a word, instruction. That's how they get knowledge. So be the person that a word is sufficient, right? Verse 12, the righteous one takes note of the house of the wicked and brings the wicked to ruin. This is one of those scriptures that I cling to in our current situation. It doesn't. It says the righteous one takes note of the house, but I want to put in the righteous one takes note of the White House. I, I really do, but it's not in there, and I'd be wrong to add it to the scripture. But it's still true. The house of the wicked, and will and and brings the wicked to ruin. See, this gets back to you have to trust God with the consequences. God will bring His consequences in the lives of those that need those consequences in His time, 
And all you need to be concerned about is you and making sure that the consequences of your life are going to be good ones, blessings. Verse 13, if a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. Woo. That cuts deep, right? If you're not willing to listen to needy people, when you're needy, people aren't going to be listening to you. Verse 14, a gift given in secret soothes anger and a bribe concealed in the cloak pacifies great wrath. Now, this is not justifying uh, giving secret gifts or bribes. I think that uh, Senator Menendez might uh, agree with you. Um, What we're finding out, and we we knew all along, is many politicians receive money and gifts and things on this. I I don't think that's a surprise to any of us. But what that does when people do that, um, sometimes they do that for advantage. Sometimes they do that to pacify wrath. So people would be brought before the town council or the courts, and they would basically be willing to pay a fine rather than suffer the consequences of their bad behavior. Here, I got one better for you. Don't act badly, and you won't have to buy your way out of trouble, right? It's just the truth. It doesn't mean it's something you should do. It's just something we observe. Verse 15, when justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous. Can I hear amen? amen. Don't you feel good when, you, when somebody finally gets what they deserve from God? When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. We're waiting for that day when the Lord returns. Verse 16, a man who strays from the path of understanding comes to rest in the company of the dead. That makes its mark, right? Stay on the path of understanding and wisdom, and you'll obviously live. Verse 17, he who loves pleasure will become poor, and whoever loves wine and oil will never be rich. If you put pleasure over good character and doing the right things, it ends in poverty. We know this. There are people that die all the time. Uh, Alexander the Great, he lived such a pleasure-seeking life, he basically partied himself to death. He ruled the world, the known world. And he died in a drunken, debauched state. Sad, right? I think he was 30. And he died after he conquered the world. And he lamented, nothing left to conquer. And notice, whoever loves wine and oil or or rich luxuries uh, will, will never be rich. You lose everything by indulging in these things. Verse 18, the wicked become a ransom for the righteous and the unfaithful for the upright. Uh, This is a contrast just to show you that uh, the righteous always come out on top in the end. I know it doesn't feel like that sometimes, but it it is still true. Verse 19, better to live, oh, here we go again, ready? Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife. They put these proverbs in here. I did not. Let's change it just to be fair. Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome or ill-tempered spouse. So that way you can apply both sides, right? Have you ever been to a desert? Jim used to spend a lot of time out in Yuma, right? And so you, you, you know, that's a high desert though, right? I was in Palm Springs once. Uh, we were going out to a pastor's conference and we decided we, wanted, we were going to spend like one night in Palm Springs before the, 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 the conference started. It was a very nice resort hotel. We got a good rate. Uh, and uh, I remember we stopped where the uh, windmills are just to take some pictures. I got out of the car, and every drop of moisture in my body evaporated immediately. Thank God I had chapstick, or I wouldn't have lived to tell about it. 
I couldn't believe it. I've never been in such an arid place. I live here where, like, it's 100% humidity, you know. I couldn't believe how dry it was. What happened? Uh, well, it's not very comfortable to live in a desert, and it's not very comfortable to live with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife or husband. Verse 20, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. So, you know, foolish people, they utilize all their resources, and they have nothing left to spare. Verse 21, He who pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. Pretty simple proverb, pursue righteousness and love. That is doing the right thing and caring about people. Doing the right thing and caring about people. One more time. Doing the right thing and caring about people. That will bring blessing, life, prosperity, and honor. Of course. Verse 22. A wise man attacks the city of the mighty and pulls down uh, the stronghold in which they trust. A wise man attacks the city of the mighty and pulls down the stronghold in which they trust. This is interesting. A very interesting proverb. It's not encouraging us to do the wrong thing or to attack people. But if there's an attack that needs to be made and you need to take out an enemy, the wise person attacks the city of the mighty, gets them where they live, goes after their source of strength and their stronghold, right? Pulls down the stronghold in which they trust. If you have to defeat, if you have to defeat an enemy, you have to go after the thing that means the most to them. Right? That's just good common sense. So, for example, when the Allied powers were trying to uh, win the war in Europe, we had D-Day so that they could gain a beachhead in Europe. Uh, you're not going to win a war from afar, you know, throwing, throwing stones. You have to get in there and take the city. That's the idea. Of course, uh, we dropped, you could argue whether it was the right or wrong thing to do, but we dropped very powerful weapons on Japan because they wouldn't surrender. Why did we do that? That we had to take out the stronghold. Now, there's a spiritual principle here. If you're wise, uh, you're going to attack the city of the mighty. How do you do that? Well, all of our weapons are not carnal, but mighty. Right? Mighty, to the pulling down of strongholds. God has given you prayer. He's given you the word of God. And if you're going to face the wicked or the, or the, the mighty, the, those against us, uh, you have to recognize the stronghold has to be removed. That happens through prayer. That happens through fasting. That happens through knowing God's word. It is written. It is written. It is written, right? Jesus is a great example. Verse 23, he who guards his mouth and his tongue keeps himself from calamity. Isn't that true? If you don't, you bring calamity into your life. Verse 24, the proud and arrogant man, mocker is his name, he behaves with overweening pride. I like that word. I wouldn't use that in a sentence, overweening. But the idea is that there's a lot of pride. You have so much pride, you're a proud and arrogant person, and you behave that way. That, that's very obvious. Uh, mocker, a, a mocker is a person who always got something bad to say about everybody else. Proud. Verse 25, the sluggard or the lazy person's craving. The sluggard's craving will be the death of him. Right? He craves what? He craves food, but he doesn't crave work because his hands refuse to work. So the sluggard's craving will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. All day long he craves for more, but the righteous give without sparing. So the contrast is the person that's lazy is never satisfied. They want more and more and more, but they're not willing to do anything to get it, whereas the righteous have so much that they can spare. 
but I advise the righteous not to give to the sluggard. In that case, you're just enabling them to be lazy. That's not put in there, but I would say that. That's, a, that's important to mention. But understand, you'd rather be the person who's righteous, hardworking, and you'll have plenty. Okay, we're almost there. We're going to finish up in 21. Uh, the sacrifice of the wicked is detestable. How much more so when brought with evil intent? So when a person comes in the church and they give and, and, and they're wicked people, it's detestable. God doesn't receive that. It's detestable. But how much more is it when someone comes in and they're giving with an ulterior motive? They want to appear generous or they want people to think well of them. So how much more so when brought with evil intent? Verse 28. A false witness will perish, and whoever listens to him will be destroyed forever. As liars. People who lie and say things that aren't true, they'll eventually pay for it, they'll eventually perish, and the people that take them at their word will also perish. They'll be destroyed forever. Verse 29. A wicked man puts up a bold front, but an upright man gives thought to his ways. So the wicked person kind of pretends to be who they are. They kind of put up this bold front, make a good impression. But notice what it says about an upright man. He thinks about what he does before he does it. Verse 30, there is wisdom, or excuse me, there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Oh, amen. The plans of the wicked in our society today seem like, it seems like they're going to succeed, doesn't it? But they can't. Because it says there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. And that goes for you too, you and I. If we think that our plans can succeed against God's plans, think again. It's not going to happen. Thank God. Finally, last verse for tonight. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. So you can do everything in your life to try to accomplish some goal. Win a war, get a job, accomplish something. But notice, we read, it's still God who determines the outcome. And, and I want you to understand that that's a very important truth. God is the one that brings victory when we venture out for war. You can uh, have a horse, and a horse was a very powerful tool in a war. A horse is like a tank. You know, you move fast, and it's very hard to knock someone off a horse. Very powerful. But they're made ready. That is all your plans, all that you do, you try to do to, to get, get the victory but victory comes from the Lord. Victory rests in the Lord. Remember this, uh, some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Amen? So in this chapter, just closing up the thought, we need to consider the consequences of our actions. God can use the temporal authorities to correct us, and he will. He can weigh our actions. He can deal with us accordingly. Remember that. He will allow us to suffer the result of unwisely choosing a spouse. Unless you want to spend your life in the corner of a roof or in a desert, you might want to think it all the way through. God is the ultimate authority, and he is sovereign over man's plans. It is so vitally important that we remember that truth. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this study. We've been through a lot tonight, a lot to think about, a lot of lessons and application. But all of, us, all of it teaches us one very important thing. You're in control. We're not. But if we put our lives in your hands, then you're in control of our lives. That's the best way to think all, of, all the way through our plans, to just put them in your hands, to say, nevertheless, your will be done. Then we know that the consequences will be good consequences. Then we know that as we think things through, we can expect blessing and not curses. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom to apply these lessons to our hearts. 
that we might receive your many blessings. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.